Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From the Smithsonian Magazine, an amateur metal detectorist has made the gold find of the century in Norway. Is it teeth? (laughs) (laughs) No, no. It was uh, gold jewelry and very legitimate gold jewelry. And it was only months after he picked up the hobby of metal detectoring. So, hey. Lucky him. It happened to you. For extra giggle points, the gentleman's name is Erland Bohr, B-O-R-E. Hmm. So if you had any jokes about being a metal detectorist, being absolutely right, right. mind-numbing. But he picked up the hobby earlier this year pretty much because his doctor encouraged him to become more active. So he went to work on the Norwegian island of Renesoy and quickly stumbled upon something strange. At first, he thought he had just unearthed old chocolate coins. That's how gaudy (laughs) they looked. Wow. But I mean, it was real gold. He dug up nine engraved gold pendants, 10 gold pearls, and three gold rings. And they all date to the 6th century CE. Officials say the discovery is the first of its kind in the country (laughs) since the 1800s. Wow. He made the discovery over the summer. One day after searching with very little success, he thought, okay, if this was a long time ago, where would I have been? Based on that logic, he moved to higher ground. You know, if you're on an island. (laughs) Yeah, no, you don't bury your treasure under the tide line. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Exactly. So sure enough, he moved to higher ground and... Quote, I was suddenly sitting with gold treasure in my hands. So he took a picture, sent the find to some nearby experts, and Hakon Rearson, an archaeologist at the museum, said the artifacts come from a particularly difficult time in history. So this period was marked with a crisis of crop failures, worsening climate, there were plagues. And because there were so many abandoned farms in Rogaland, this area, from this era, they're thinking the artifacts were most likely either hidden valuables or possibly even offerings to the gods during that dramatic time. Hmm. The pendants themselves are also noteworthy for their depiction of horses. So similar pendants from this period usually feature images of the Norse god Odin. And while Odin doesn't appear on these newly discovered pendants, they think that they carry a similar meaning. So on the gold pendants, there's a horse's tongue that's hanging out and it's got this slumped posture and (laughs) twisted legs, which is pretty gruesome, right? And similar to the Christian symbol of the cross, which was spreading in the Roman Empire at the same time, the horse symbol represented illness and hardship, but also hope for healing and new life. Unfortunately, Norwegian law dictates that objects older than 1537 and coins older than 1650, they automatically revert to becoming state property. So conservators at the Museum of Archaeology, they're now cleaning the artifacts. They're going to put it on public display. But he did get a finder's fee and he plans to continue his new hobby. Yeah. (laughs) uh, But how big was the finder's fee? Was it like a coupon to go to the museum for free or was it like a real finder's fee? (laughs) 
they didn't mention the actual amount, but that's more of an American move, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I, I would yeah. hope so. You're right. You're right. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from MessyNessieChic.com, and it's titled A Brief History of the Mom and Pop Business of Public Execution. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, messy, messy indeed. <laughs> so in Paris, when his father died in 1644, Louis de Moray inherited his family's execution business at the age of 10. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, starting off strong. <laughs> So his mother had been part of an established execution family that had been in business for the past 100 years. Wow. Wow. Desmarais' mother's clan also hatched the most notable of all the execution families, the Sansons, who dealt in death for six generations, starting with Charles Sanson, who founded their dynasty in 1688, operating before, during, and after the French Revolution, spawning over 200 executioners. Wow. The career highs for his descendant, Charles Henry Sanson, were the first use of the guillotine in Paris and the execution of Louis XVI in January of 1793. Wow. He was titled by the citizens Monsieur de Paris, the Gentleman of Paris, <laughs> and his second son, Henry, executed Marie Antoinette in 1793. They are bumping elbows with some serious celebrities here. Like. Yeah, real <laughs> eminent executioners. So in Germany, a Franz Schmidt inherited the business of executioner from his father in the Bavarian town of Hof in 1573. He would later become the chief executioner in Nuremberg after marrying the then chief executioner's daughter. <laughs> Franz left a rich and intimate diary recording not just technical detail, but considered opinion itemizing his 361 career executions. Wow. Yeah. A lot of dead people. <laughs> well, and he's got opinions. He's like, this was a yeah. good kill. The other one, I don't know that he was guilty. I still killed him, but. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Franz formally retired from the execution business to continue as a very successful medical practitioner, later dying a respectable rich man. Mm. <laughs> the quantity of work required by the French Revolution also put extreme pressure on the executioner, as you might imagine. To relieve the situation, the guillotine was employed. It was quick, reliable, clean, and impersonal, perfect for the industrialization of deadly justice. Yeah, yeah but then anybody could do it, because all you got to do is pull a lever, push a button, right? Yeah. I mean, just like some other things you could say that about oh, today. Oh, taking our jobs. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this higher capacity device was not only for the benefit of those to be executed, but supplied the growing medical professionals need for fresh, almost intact bodies. Right. <laughs> Protocol still had to be followed and there was to be no post-beheading degradation or humiliation of corpses or their dismembered parts, which is nice. I guess. Yeah. Both reviled and feared, the taint of marrying into the bloodline of death dealers was a death sentence in social society itself. Huh. According oh. to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast, the general public had a superstition that executioners were untouchable. Being in a relationship with an executioner who had dispatched a relative was unthinkable, and they were kept <laughs> well apart from society. Certainly, the executioner was never anybody's friend and definitely not the most desirable of neighbors. I'm just imagining it's like, you know, you've got your next door neighbor and they're whatever, mowing the lawn too loudly, but instead they're like building a guillotine and right. like practicing axe swings or something. And they periodically glance over at you and just sort of put their hood on and go, oh, you got a problem? No? Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but like that one guy, he had like a, a distinguished name, like the guy of Paris. How does that square with society being all snobbish about it? 
Well, he got out of the game. And so oh. I think that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. You can't stay right. in it. Yeah. You have to kill a bunch of people and then move on with your life. Right. Like that's we the only way. We all love redemption you're... story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. and like you got to think about the poor daughter of the executioner who's like, really, your only marriage prospect is this other executioner. Like that's all you can't. <laughs> no one's going to touch you otherwise. Yeah. These families actually had no choice but to intermarry, right. inevitably interbreeding, and they became dynasties apart, only meeting among themselves. Interesting. Mm. It makes sense why that's a family business then. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So execution itself seems never to have been an easy trade. Throughout the centuries, the job description not only required the ceremonial removal of heads, but the application of public beatings, pre-death tortures, as well as a light medical knowledge to facilitate disemboweling, quartering, and of course, rope work skills for hangings. Mm. Burning and drowning were also part of the services required, depending (laughs) on local practices. The skilled application of hand-sharpened swords and axes was essential, too. Some authorities would only allow three strikes, though poor technique or mistakes were regular occurrences. And I don't really know how that works. Like, you botch three strikes and, like, they just get to walk away if they can. uh... (laughs) That seems like if if you've done three and the job's not done, you really want a fourth one. You don't want to be like, no, no, I'm free now. Like, you don't live. (laughs) Yeah, just... The daily routine actually also included detective work, sniffing around, investigating, and accusing, effectively creating their own workload. In France, the droit de havage, which I'm sure I've mispronounced, was the executioner's right to collect food and goods from the city's traders. The executioners would be identified by offering a distinctive goods bag as it was not acceptable for vendors to engage or touch them. Oh, wow. Uh, the article ends on, uh, it all makes going to work in the morning that little bit easier to swallow now, doesn't it? <laughs> Which I don't think is necessary. <laughs> that is not a necessary comparison here. Yeah. But I'm glad I don't have that job. I don't know. Yes. I mean, look, here's the thing. If <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to torture people for sure. So if you're talking about like, yeah, there's punishments before you, you know, swing the axe or whatever. No, I don't want to take part in that. Also, I'm not strong enough to swing a sword or an axe. So the job's not going to be given to me either. However, being like a natural pariah from society where no one's going to bother you, there's some appeal to that. Like, <laughs> like no one can be like, oh, listen, we're going to need you to take part in this group, whatever. It's like, no, I don't have to go to the party. I'm the executioner. You don't want me there. So I'm just saying there's benefits. Yeah, well, there might be other ways of doing that. You could just smell bad, too. That's true. That's really true. I could accomplish that in easier ways, probably. <laughs> and I'm sure the executioners smell bad, too. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This comes from ZME Science. Footballers wearing jerseys with small numbers are rated as more slender than those wearing big numbers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. Was the sample size like kindergartners who don't have object permanence or? No, 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 no. Actually, well, we'll get into that. Okay. So a few years back, a news story found that many football players, and we're, we're talking to American football here. Right. Chose to wear jersey numbers between 10 and 19 because they believed lower numbers made them look slimmer and faster. It seems silly, but apparently it's not. Well, it is. It can be silly and true. That's fine. Right, right, go. right, right. So Landon Shams, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of California, Los Angeles, showed images of football players to volunteers who agreed 
players in jerseys numbered 10 to 19 looked thinner than those in jerseys numbered 80 to 89. Wow. Which suggests that previously learned statistical associations between numbers and sizes will mm. influence the perception of body mm. size. So that's why I said probably kids would have an easier time seeing that. Right, because they they're not already associated. Yeah. yeah. A little background on jersey numbers to give you a little context of why this study exists in the first place. Back in the day, the NFL had a rule in place that required wide receivers to wear uniform numbers between 80 and 89. Mm -hmm. This rule was in place to help officials and fans easily identify the positions of players on the field. However, for whatever reason, in 2014, that rule changed. They could pick whatever number they wanted. And by 2019... 80% of wide receivers wore a jersey between 10 and 19. Huh. It was during the height of COVID when they initially did this (laughs) That makes so much more sense now. They're like, we got to study something, (laughs) y'all. We're so bored. (laughs) (laughs) So, but that also meant the initial group was tiny. Uh Uh-huh. So they did test it again after COVID to double check their findings. They also, I think, realized kind of one of the flaws in their original design. So they, in the second pass, they used shirt numbers that included the same digits. So for example, 17 and 71, Mm. this assured that the effect wasn't because the width of the number had changed, Mm. right? The results show that volunteers still saw the players with higher numbers to be larger than those with lower numbers. So what you're saying is instead of going on a diet, I just need to get a shirt that has like a number 11 on it or so. Yeah. I mean, if you want to be a size zero, you just wear a zero. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Well, I feel like we've done some of that here in the U.S. I feel like some vanity sizing has happened. I used to be a medium. I'm now a small. No, they've definitely done it with women's sizes for a long time. Like they didn't used to have a size zero. They had to invent a size zero because they started telling people who were size 14 that they're actually 12 and so Mm -hmm. on. And I have even seen like negative numbers on some things because they're just like, listen. (laughs) I was going to joke about it. No, I've seen it. It's ridiculous. That dress is a vacuum. Exactly. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. This next one is from the New York Times, and it's called Windows Installed in Skulls Help Doctors Study Damaged Brains. We're talking about the operating system? (laughs) (laughs) No, we are talking about physical see-through windows in people's heads. And I don't actually know which is more dystopian. A see-through window in someone's head or an operating system in someone's head. (laughs) Neuralink can do both. Exactly. (laughs) But, of course, they're not just doing this willy-nilly. These clear acrylic pieces are being installed in situations where a person has severe head trauma, such as 27-year-old Tucker Marr, who fell down a metal staircase in October 2022 and fractured his skull. Soon after that, doctors discovered a blood clot forming under the injury, so they had to remove a large chunk of his skull to relieve the pressure. Once they were done, instead of installing one of the old-school prosthetic skull pieces that they would normally use in this situation, Marr became one of the first people to receive a clear 3D-printed prosthetic skull piece. I should note, it still has skin on top of it. His brain's not just, like, out there for the world to see. And while it is theoretically true that the window would make it easier for doctors to visually inspect his brain again if they needed to, the real benefit to these acrylic pieces is that ultrasound waves can pass through them. 
Ah, for monitoring. Yes. What this means is that at follow-up appointments, Mar can get a simple ultrasound on his scalp instead of the much more costly CT scan that patients like him usually ah. require. And some patients do require a lot of follow-ups. For example, with a condition called hydrocephalus, doctors have to put a shunt in the brain to drain excess fluid, and the patients have to be regularly checked for basically the rest of their lives to make sure the fluid is continuing to drain properly. So. Mm -hmm. You know, you put in a window at the same time you put in that shunt, the process gets a lot easier for many, many years to come. But even though they are putting them in people, this is still early tech, and not everyone's convinced. Dr. <laughs> Joseph Watson, director of the Brain Tumor Program at Georgetown University, called the technique frivolous. He oh. said, quote, You are going through a small port, and it doesn't give you a picture of the whole brain. But Netanel Ben Shalom, who is an assistant professor of neurosurgery at Lenox Hill Hospital and also happens to be Mars' doctor, says that's not a relevant argument because in most cases you only need to see a specific part of the brain, <laughs> namely the part that was injured. And yep. for Mar, there are even more benefits to this window because whether a skull plate is made of acrylic or more traditional materials, it is often considered by insurance companies to be elective, which means mm. after his initial surgery, Mar didn't get one. He just had a big dented soft spot on his head, like a baby's <gasps> fontanelle, but way bigger. <laughs> and aside from the aesthetics of having a misshapen skull, he said he would often get nausea, headaches, and fatigue whenever the weather changed because there was nothing there but skin to shield his brain from the barometric pressure change. Ooh. How is that elective surgery? Uh, well, <laughs> they're like, you can live without it. You know, I mean, listen, oh. insurance companies, you can't argue with them. Uh, yeah, don't, don't start. <laughs> yeah. yeah, But this is presumably how he ended up with what is, if we're being honest, an untested piece of medical equipment in his head. To be clear, they have just released a study of 37 patients that showed the acrylic windows have no greater risk of infection than traditional prosthetics. But in order to get those studies, someone has to be the guinea pig. Mm. And they don't go into any compensation details in Mars' case, but they do get pretty explicit with another patient who received an acrylic window named Jared Hager. So Hager injured his head in a skateboarding accident, and he also happened to be homeless. So he went to the ER and got the emergency surgery that he needed. But for two and a half years since his accident, he'd just been living in a van with a giant piece of his skull missing. Oof. Meanwhile, Dr. Charles Liu at the University of Southern California was conducting a study on how the acrylic windows could be used not for head injury patients specifically, but for a new kind of ultrasound that Liu is developing and thinks will ultimately be able to give us the same level of information that an fMRI does. Hmm. In order to finish developing his new ultrasound device, he needed to start easy by getting data from scans through an acrylic window before potentially moving up to using it on intact skulls. So Liu got connected with Hager, and through a grant from the Rancho Los Amigos Foundation, they were able to give Hager first an acrylic window in his skull and then set him up in an apartment in Long Beach for as long as he keeps coming back to let them do more <gasps> studies on his brain. Good deal? Hager said, quote, I'm never going to stop helping with anything Dr. Liu needs. So the next step, of course, is to follow up on the long-term outcomes for the several dozen patients who have these things, but in general, the window pieces themselves are cheap to make. The surgery to install them is identical to what we're already doing with other kinds of prosthetics. So it seems like this is going to be the norm sooner rather than later, unless Dr. Liu's new technology works out, in which case everybody's going to be getting ultrasounds on their head and there's no reason to get these windows and people who don't get a prosthetic will just not get a prosthetic again. 
which is horrible. <laughs> but <Wow. laughs> Right, because it's elective. Yeah, exactly. Right. Who needs something that protects their brain from getting smashed against? Exactly. Overrated. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, if it's bad enough, like you can't even sleep on that side of your head. You ha- right. Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah. But also, yeah. I'm hoping that we're inching closer to the time when we all just sort of electively get full clear skulls. Right, we all look like Brainiac. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mars attacks. You like, like, okay, look, when you're looking at low numbers and you think that person's skinny, if you see someone's giant brain through a clear window, tell me you're not going to oh. think that person's smarter it's than the they window into are. their soul. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> their vain, vain soul. <laughs> I, I'm just like, I've been quiet because I'm just stunned by this idea. Like, I would die in my sleep because I just roll around all the right. time. Right. Yeah. Well, they do have pictures <laughs> that's elective. in the article. If you want to yeah. see somebody with a very weird shaped and skull they got pictures oh sweet <laughs> <laughs> next link next link let's stay in the brain shall we but maybe without a clear window <laughs> we're going to go back to sort of old school methodology because new atlas has an article about brain imaging and how it reveals how ocd sufferers have difficulty processing certainty Hmm. Kind of makes sense if you think about it, but don't think about it. Look at the research because researchers have used brain imaging to find that obsessive compulsive disorder affects particular areas of the brain and specifically during the decision making process. These findings provide a greater understanding of the processes underlying this, frankly, enigmatic condition. And this is enigmatic because there are tons of myths and stereotypes around OCD. It gets thrown around a lot by people who Mm -hmm. may not really be diagnosed, but it's not a personality trait, right? If you're uptight, meticulous, or neurotic, maybe you're just that. It doesn't have to be OCD. Right. And OCD is not all about cleanliness or neatness. It is, in fact, a neurological disorder whose underpinnings are not well known. So, the researchers studied a group of patients with OCD and another group with severe OCD who'd undergone something called a capsulotomy, which is a last resort surgical procedure to relieve symptoms when other treatments haven't worked. No, I did not Google that. I cannot give you additional details. It sounded too much like lobotomy, and I was not ready for that gross. Yeah, so, yeah. But the aim of this research was to investigate brain processing during a task featuring uncertainty. The task they used was basically a simple card gambling trick. So participants faced with an open card were simply asked to bet whether they thought the next card would be higher or lower than the open card. And at the extremes with high or low open cards, certainty is a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. But with cards near the middle of the deck, that's when the uncertainty gets boosted. They used functional magnetic resonating imaging, fMRI, to focus on areas of the brain typically associated with decision-making. We're talking about the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and the anterior insula. Critically, patients with OCD showed slower decision-making, but only when the outcomes were more certain. Because these impairments appeared in both the OCD patients and those who had improved after the capsulotomy surgery, The suggestion is that this cognitive mechanism might be a core feature underlying why OCD develops, irrespective of how severe the symptoms might be. Hmm. So the findings basically make clear that the condition is one marked by disordered brain processing when it comes to certainty. And interrupting that or better understanding it to create adaptations that hopefully don't result in last resort surgeries (laughs) resembling lobotomies 
it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I can understand the repetitive behavior too as a way to, there's some certainty yeah. in that repetitive behavior. There's some easingness, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that, you uh, know what to expect because you just did the thing and doing it again is going to give you that little hit of uh, predictability. I don't know. I got to say, I'm not a fan of how uncertain the results are. Like, I really wish <laughs> they had been more of a slam dunk. <laughs> <laughs> You might be a candidate for right, last right, resort right. brain surgery. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. This article comes to us from smithsonianmag.com. And uh, this title I'll break up into two pieces. First part, alleged alien corpses displayed to Mexican Congress. <laughs> what? Okay. Second part, did not convince scientists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen the the memes of it being cake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it did not convince the scientists, but what about those politicians? Eh? Yeah, listen, that's who uh, they were showing it to. Yeah. So two specimens alleged to be the remains of aliens were presented before the Mexican Congress on Wednesday by a self-proclaimed ufologist who has previously engaged in pseudoscience and false claims regarding extraterrestrials. Like he's actually run hoaxes and stuff. Right. So, Been caught. What? That's weird. Yeah. UFO scientist, writer, and TV host Jamie Mousen testified under oath that the two shriveled gray bodies with three fingers on each hand are, quote, non-human beings that are not part of our terrestrial evolution, but the experts were quick to cast doubt on his claims. Antigona Segura, one of Mexico's top astrobiologists, said these conclusions are simply not backed up by evidence. The whole thing is very shameful. Mausen also said that researchers at the National Autonomous University of Mexico used carbon dating to determine the remains are about a thousand years old. Scientists with the university have distanced themselves from Mausen's testimony, <laughs> saying they were not involved in collecting the sample, nor did they come in contact with the full specimens. Hmm. They said, in no case do we make conclusions about the origins of these samples. In 2015, Mawson similarly revealed a body that he claimed belonged to an alien, but was later shown to be the remains of a human child. Oh, oh. gosh. Yeah. And two years later, he participated in a video project claiming that specimens uncovered in Nazca, Peru, with elongated skulls and three fingers on each hand were evidence of aliens. Archaeologists said some of the bodies may have been indigenous Peruvians mutilated to look extraterrestrial, and a report from Peru's prosecutor's office declared the specimens were recently manufactured dolls, which have been covered with a mixture of paper and synthetic glue to simulate Ugh. the presence of skin. In the hearing this week, Mawson claimed the two more recent bodies were uncovered in algae mines in Cusco, Peru in 2017. He alleged that the x-rays revealed one of the beings had eggs inside of it. <gasps> Experts have not analyzed the remains up close, nor has the data been released to the public. Still, images of the supposed aliens have gone viral on social media. <laughs> the buzz around the recent testimony is yet another indication of renewed interest in extraterrestrial beings from the public and federal governments. Just one day after Mausen's testimony, NASA released a report on unidentified anomalous phenomena and announced it is appointing its first director of UAP research. Hmm. And in July of this year, former Air Force intelligence officer David Grush testified in a U.S. congressional hearing that the U.S. government is in possession of non-human biologics from UAP crash sites. Well, listen, the Mexican Congress was just jealous. 
They were like, we want someone to testify to us. Get who we can get. <laughs> so this is not confirmed. This is just something I saw on Twitter. But I saw people from Mexico saying that is not the Mexico Congress. They just literally rented a room <gasps> and got cameras and put a bunch of people in there. Oh, so, no. Like, it's not. Yeah. It's All hard right. to say. Yeah. Speaking of brain disorders, like, <laughs> what convinces you that this is a good idea, that you're going to get away with this? Like, there is an actual Mexican Congress, and they can all immediately stand up and say, no, that wasn't me. Like, why? Why would you try uh, to perpetuate well, this? Because Netflix now has ancient aliens streaming yeah. on it. Yeah. They got yeah. a lot of good support and feedback from their subreddit. They felt this, you know, there was an <laughs> audience for this. Yeah. I mean, presumably at some point at the end of the rainbow, there's a pot of gold for this guy. Somehow. <laughs> um, yeah, somehow. And yeah. like we are on the cusp of some very interesting stuff. You know, we just covered right. the new UAP website that mm -hmm. the U.S. government launched. And so there is a legitimate interest in these phenomena. But this alien, like from <laughs> far away in the original video, you know, they uncase it. and You're like, oh, man, there's like an actual body in there. What is that about? But then you like get a close up picture and you're like, yeah, obviously that's a paper mache thing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, aliens could be made out of paper mache. You don't know. We don't know. Like, they don't have sure. to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh -huh. people have suggested, you know, maybe there there would be some sort of like arsenic based alien or silicon or something, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. some other weird material. Why not yeah. paper? Why not paper? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, trees were alive at one point. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, anyways, uh, that's the end of this one. Next link. Next, Next link. This comes from Discover. How close is science to solving the problem of consciousness? Spoiler. Yeah, we're not. <laughs> Nowhere near. <laughs> One of the most difficult problems in neuroscience and philosophy is the study of consciousness. How does consciousness arrive from physical matter? And in 1995, philosopher David Chalmers dubbed this question, quote, the hard problem. <laughs> the easy problem, he said, is figuring out how the brain does the things like see, learn, and think and make decisions. Hmm. Not that it's necessarily easy to do, but at least these questions can be approached scientifically, which means eventually they will or can be solved. The hard problem, on the other hand, is figuring out why we have a subjective experience that follows. Hmm. Some experts think we're getting close to this problem. Others, including myself, mm -hmm. think it might never be solved. So Christina Kresich is a neuroscientist and a two-time winner of the Neurophilosophy of Free Will Worldwide Competition, which I don't know if y'all have gotten your tickets yet for this no, year's competition. No, I haven't. I need they, to. They, <laughs> yeah, they, they are selling up fast on Ticketmaster. You yeah. might want to get those. Yeah. She believes there has been considerable progress in recent years on the easy problem. She says, we've been at least able to assess what I will call enabling conditions, or at the very least, what conditions prevent consciousness from occurring. Hmm. Much of the progress she believes can be attributed to better tech for studying brain and action, right? The fMRIs you were just talking hmm. about. But that still doesn't tell us, as the author of this article puts it, quote, how we get from meat to mind. <laughs> and in the neuroscience corner, one of the most promising current theories of consciousness is called Integrated Information Theory, or IIT, developed by Guilio Tononi, a neuroscientist at the University of Wisconsin. <laughs> Conscious. Sorry. <laughs> you were expecting somewhere else, I'm not surely you? Italy. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh -huh. Not is in Wisconsin. Right, right, right. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
Consciousness, according to IIT, requires the integration of huge amounts of information and consciousness that emerges in any system when that information is sufficiently integrated. And it's not enough for the system to possess loads of information like your computer. It has to connect all of that information meaningfully. Mm -hmm. So the more information is integrated, the more conscious that being that integrates it becomes. This theory gets a lot of criticism because it opens the door to finding consciousness in some pretty unexpected places, like a proton. Mm. Yeah, it falls into the idea that consciousness is inherent in all matter. Man, <laughs> namaste. <laughs> uh -huh. So it's not the only theory, though. There's also the global workspace theory, GWT, first developed by Bernard Bars. GWT holds that consciousness is formed in an internal, quote, workspace as the brain processes information. But according to GWT, consciousness is effectively just a byproduct of the information processing that underlies behavior. And there are others studying the brain using modern techniques such as transcranial magnetic stimulation and other attempts to unravel the conundrum of consciousness. Some are even looking at the connection between consciousness and quantum mechanics, mm. which we know so much about. Right, right. right. <laughs> But much of today's consciousness study or the study of consciousness is focused on finding the neural correlates of consciousness, neural patterns in the brain associated with specific consciousness states, right? Which means we're still not really solving the whole hard problem. Nailing down the neural correlates of consciousness, even if it can be done, still won't necessarily solve how consciousness emerges from matter. That question has philosophical implications. Sure. Which honestly may not be in the purview of science ever. Mm -hmm. Of course, neuroscientists they interviewed for this article, oh, they'll think it'd be solved in the next one. They just need some grant money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. The article even tells a story of 25 years ago, a wager between two scientists who one of them said, yep, we'll have it solved by now. Well, one of them lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Still not there. Though, though, my honest hope is that we do figure it out so that we can upload my consciousness so I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh -huh. Next link. Next link. All right. Well, I have a quick one here at the end from smithsonianmag.org that is absolutely adorable. And it's called, Where Can You Find the Oldest Cat Door on Earth? And they readily admit that there's really no way to know for sure, but there are a few contenders they want us to consider. The first is in the Exeter Cathedral in Devon County, England, where records show that in 1598, a bishop named William Cotton paid carpenters to carve a cat hole in the door to a large astronomical clock. Oh. According to historian Diane Walker, the reason for this was because the clock's large gears would have been lubricated with animal fat, which attracted mice. So the cathedral's cat served as pest control specifically inside the clock. And that clock itself is a pretty important landmark in Exeter, with some suggesting that this is where the nursery rhyme Hickory Dickory Dock came from. Ah. We hmm. also know that the owners of the various cats who held this job over the years were compensated by the church with a food stipend. Aww. And they're not clear whether that's food for the owners or food for the cats, but I think <laughs> it's food for the cats. Another possibility for oldest cat door comes from Chetham's Library in Manchester. The library itself wasn't established until 1653, but the building dates back to 1421 when it was a college for priests. And it has a cat door. We just don't know who put it in. So we can't say if it was before or after the Exeter Cathedral. 
Other historical cat doors that probably aren't the oldest but are still fun include an alleged hole that Sir Isaac Newton cut in the door of his personal rooms at the University of Cambridge. That wasn't for a cat. Right, right, right. (laughs) (laughs) And an Italian painting known as the Madonna della Gattaiola, or Virgin of the Cat Flap. (laughs) Now... That is a modern name for it. The painting itself was just a regular painting of the Virgin Mary from the 15th century, which decorated either the side of a church organ or possibly a table at the Church of San Giorgio in Tuscany, Italy. At some point, the church did some remodeling, and the wooden slab with the painting on it was repurposed as a barn door by one of the priests, who at that point carved a hole in it for his cats to come and go. And then they wrap the whole thing up by bringing it into the modern age, where nearly one million accounts on Twitter slash X follow the comings and goings of Pepito, a small black cat whose owner, Clement Stork, has rigged a motion camera to his cat door. (laughs) Stork initially created the account as part of a test for a software automation he was building and says he has no idea why people are so invested in knowing when Pepito leaves and when he returns safely home, (laughs) but he's glad people are enjoying it and he always reads the comments. And that's it. It's just <laughs> cat doors. We've been doing them forever, and I guess we'll keep yeah. continuing to do Listen, them. Listen, they meow and need to be let out or need to be let in. Just that autonomy goes a long way towards reducing yeah. annoyance. Exactly. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Works of Mars, Why Does Everybody Hate This Drinking Fountain?, And the lost waters of Kathmandu are needed now more than ever. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.